Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another long-awaited edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Joining me as always, you know I'm going to say it, but it's true, the super and terrific <laughs> Stephanie Pomeroy. Hi Steph, how are you? Oh, it's great to be with you. It's been a very, very long time. It has been a very long time. Way, yeah, way you've traveled the globe how many times over in that in that interim? Well, yeah, well no, I, I've been to Australia. I spent a lot of time down in Australia to see my daughter and then back to the UK and then back to America and... I'm going to be back in Cayman next week, I hope. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> Who knows what the, what the life may throw at me. And you've, yeah. uh, you've been traveling as well? Yes, I um, decided to try and get myself COVID. So <laughs> I figured I wasn't going to get it here, you know, sitting around the house. Um, so, yeah, I did a little bit of traveling, my first uh, road trip for work in a couple of years. Um, and it was actually very nice to get out and see people. Yeah. Um, I could have done without the memento of the trip, but the, yes, well. uh, the actual getting out there and seeing people was was very nice and uh, refreshing. Well, I said it off mic, and I'll say it again. You are the best-looking COVID patient I've seen, despite, uh, despite <laughs> you having it. You look better than I did when I had it. Good grief. I looked a complete mess when I got it. Oh, please. Well, I benefit from exceedingly low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Well, listen, listen. We have plenty to talk about you and I. And I think the theme of this, you encapsulated it perfectly in the title of your most recent piece, which was yet another perfect Seinfeld reference. Right. It's not a lie if you believe it. And I read that piece and it's just, I'm going to call it classic Pomboy. It was just everything <laughs> that makes your work so good, um, including the Seinfeld reference. So I, I think to frame the conversation, let's set the stage and explain where that reference comes from for any oh, non-Seinfeld fans. I, I mean, this should be required viewing for everybody. <laughs> <It should> be. <laughs> oh, well, as I recall, I think that um, Jerry starts dating a police officer, a female police officer. Um, and somewhere in their conversation, I don't know how it comes up, but she makes some reference to Melrose Place. And he pretends to have no familiarity whatsoever with what she's talking about. Just way too embarrassed to admit that he would actually indulge anything. So uh, probably such a chick specific type of show. But anyway, he insists he's never seen the show and she doesn't believe him for a second. So she suggests that they put him on the polygraph to make sure that he's not lying. Um, and it looks like he's actually going to have to take this polygraph test. And he's so embarrassed that this stupid secret's going to come out that he's begging George to give him tips on how he can beat the, the lie detector. And I think George makes some comment like that's like uh, asking, you know, Victor Borga to teach you how to play Chopin or something, like that, you know, <laughs> um, but he's they 
pearl of wisdom was, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Um, and Which is true. Let's face it. I don't it. remember. If, I think he actually ends up going down in a ball of flames on the polygraph. He does. Yeah, how, how could he not? But, <laughs> but this, this, I mean, so you set that up beautifully as you did in your piece, but then you got into the BLS data, and this was such a perfect illustration of the kind of mainstream cheerleading of a headline number and the difference between that and actually taking the time and going to the effort of digging into what actually makes that number up. Because, um, you know, we saw this BLS report cheered last Friday and then you started picking it apart and some of the stuff that you that you brought up from deep in the numbers, I, I know you think people's eyes glaze over and they think this is way too deep in the weeds for them, but, but talk a little bit about what you found in that report because it was um, – it was completely and utterly at odds and, and some of the adjustments that were made to get those numbers because I think once people hear this, it'll give them a much better sense of how much credence to give to these numbers and, and perhaps the amount of work you need to do to figure them out properly. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wasted time writing a piece specifically looking at the payroll number is that for whatever reason, we get you know sat in front of the Bloomberg terminal every first Friday of the month and hang on this number as if it were the be all end all statistic that's going to tell us what the you know state of the economy is it's like making sausage the more you learn about what goes into making it the less and less appetite you have for ever consuming it again <laughs> you know um and it's definitely that way with the bls um and so i i do this exercise where i go into the minutiae really more just to open people's eyes to the idea that maybe this isn't a number that should be taken as gospel. Um, but there were a couple of things about it that just struck me immediately as extremely unusual. And one was that you had this big increase in the headline payroll number. But when you look at the household survey, which is a totally separate survey of employment, it's the one that the unemployment rate is based off of, that measure of employment actually declined and it declined almost as much as the payroll survey went up. You know, the payroll survey was up a little over 400,000 and the household survey was down 350,000, something like that. Yeah. So, so, you know, I just thought, well, that's really interesting and extremely unusual to see them move in opposite directions, much less to such a dramatic degree. And it just makes you think, okay, well, one of these numbers is clearly not telling us the right story. And then, of course, you had other things like, you know, wage pressures eased a little bit in the month, even though in theory to look at the if you're a headline scanning, you know, quote unquote analyst, you would have looked at that strong payroll number and been maybe a little surprised that wage pressures didn't pick up amid all that you know, strong employment growth. So there were a lot of things about it that that struck me as odd. And then you, you know, this is not endemic to the payroll report, but it's something they do with every single number that we look at when it hits the tape. And that is they do this background seasonal adjustment thing. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, monkey business that can go on with that. <laughs> you know, normally, it's a it's a program that says, all right, in December, they're holidays, therefore retail sales go up. And so we should expect a certain boost to retail sales. And conversely, you know, in June, the school year ends, so a lot of teachers leave the workforce, yada, yada, yada. So those 
seasonal adjustment factors are taking place behind the scenes with every single number we see from the PPI to the payroll report to the retail sales number that came out um, the other day. So that's another area where if something doesn't look right on the surface, sometimes you can go yeah. and look and see. And if you discover that, hey, for some bizarre reason, they decided this April that a whole lot more jobs were created than normal, you know, those kind of things are, are worth investigating. But just broadly, I mean, I think people need to be very suspicious about the quality of the data, especially when it doesn't jibe with other things that you're hearing. I mean, if it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't right <laughs> when it comes to the government data. But, so. but you went back and you pointed out that this adjustment was the biggest one, I think, since you said the 1990 recession. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For for an April, it was. Right, for um, an April. And then the other thing they do in this payroll report, which I didn't even mention, is they have this thing called the birth death factor. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, this, is a, this one, you know, seasonal adjustment generally works off of a formula that's based on, you know, obviously seasonal trends during the year. The birth death factor is essentially a number they just pick out of thin air. And the idea is that they're trying to impute jobs that were created during the month that didn't yet show up in right. payrolls. So, and the, the way they really, at the end of the day, can check to see if the numbers are right is they go back and look at corporate tax filings for the year retrospectively and say, okay, well, it did look like we built, you know, we had this many thousand new businesses and they brought in this many people, blah, blah, blah. But obviously they don't know that data until the yeah, tax yeah. filings for right. the year following. So what they do then is sort of like the seasonal adjustment. They assume the same number of job businesses were open or closed as they were the year prior. But then they can, you know, they can judge it one way or the other, depending on, you know, how how the moon strikes and they were very generous in their um, forecasts for how many jobs were created in April. So, I mean, these are just all things that um, I think, you know, this whole it's not a lie if you believe it. They feed into this narrative that, OK, yeah, the Fed's tightening and the economy slowing, but there's really no risk of a recession and they're really doing the responsible thing because they've got to get inflation under control. So there's, you know, that sort of Goldilocks scenario yeah. that if they can bring inflation down a little bit, then, and the economy cools a little bit, then everything, you know, will, will muddle through and it will all work out just fine. And this data is sort of only uh, bolstering that, I would argue, misperception. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, this this idea of it not being a lie unless you believe it is really important, right? Because at, at the end of the day, they need the population to believe it. Because on the one hand, you're being told inflation's coming down and, you know, jobs are going up and Goldilocks and soft landing and blah, blah, blah. But as soon as you stop believing that as a consumer, as a saver, as a debtor, any of these things, behavior changes. And so, you know, when that behavior changes, it complicates the numbers, which then, you know, you get into this horrific negative feedback loop. And, and I, you know, I'm seeing that everywhere I go in the conversations I'm hearing with people. I've talked recently about an experience I had at a car show, and I'll, I'll talk about that. And I wasn't looking to buy a car. I was just curious to see 
the new Ford Bronco because you know I like the old Ford Bronco and they yeah. had one in the in the front of the dealership and, I, and I've, I've told this story before so I'll shorten it. But I, you know I pulled into the dealership, got out to take a, a look at this car and there were four or five guys that looked like they were playing dice. Against what it turned out they were the car salesman. One of them kind of rushed over to me, showed me the car, which had a twenty thousand dollar market adjustment on the price tag in the window. So the, the price was fifty four. They added twenty grand to it, so it was a seventy-four thousand dollar car, just because there was a shortage because of the chip supply, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the guy goes into the into the showroom to get me the brochure, even though I'd said to him, "Look, I'm not looking to buy. I just want to look at it." So oh, let me give the brochure, take a look. Literally, while he'd gone, he was gone for maybe a minute. Another salesman literally slunk up to me, handed me his card, and said, "Listen, I do I do ninety percent of the Bronco sales in this dealership, just in case you you think about." buying it I'm the guy you want to call and then slunk away obviously he didn't want the other guy to see him giving his card and in the real world you you, you think about that Steph and you know how many car salesmen are there in America a couple of million maybe all over the country I don't know million something most of whom their compensation is based on commission and not because there's any shortage of people looking to buy cars but there are no cars to sell and so 70% 70% of their income is going away and try telling them that inflation's going down. Try telling them that the job market's getting better. Try telling them any of this stuff. And, you know, I, I spoke to the guy when he came back and he was saying, because they had a whole bunch of non-Fords in the dealership. And I said, look, you've got this, you've got that. He said, I'll sell anything you want to give me. Just give me a car to sell and I'll sell it. I don't care oh. if it's Ford or it's Toyota or it's a 25-year-old Nissan. You give me the car and I'll sell it. And, and that's the real world. That's the real world out there of of shortages and price markups and people having their wages cut and the cost of living. That's the reality of it. And so this idea that it's not a lie if you believe it, I just wonder how long people are going to believe this stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think the Fed, um, you know, obviously they are wielding their jawboning tool to great effect so far. I mean, I'll give them credit for that. Um, you know, they've done, they've actually done precious right, little right. so far. But just laying out this idea that Powell is now Volcker yeah. and they uh, having, uh, you know, insisted inflation was transitory all the way from one and a half to eight and a half, now have religion and are really going to get it under control. You know, that that message has been completely acceded to in the markets. And and I think to your point about it's not a lie if you believe it, you know, the Fed, they can't come out and say, hey, there's a risk that we can't tamp down inflation or worse, that we can tamp it down, but it's going to require a really bad recession in the process. And, you know, we're going to have to let the market collapse and you know he could never say that so he has to come out with this whole you know we feel like what we're doing is appropriate and uh, we think we can engineer a soft ish landing no idea where that falls on the spectrum of <laughs> recession uh you know goldilocks well but, it's, it's funny you say that though, um, because I, I agree that 100 percent. the curtain slipped a little bit last week in the uk you know we had two weeks ago we had the bank of england Jack up rates 25 whole basis points. So they've reached 1%. And at the same time, they came out and said that they thought there was a chance inflation could hit 10 and a quarter percent this year. 
So you kind of think about them saying those two things at the same time, not we're putting rates up by 1% because we're worried inflation is going to hit 10 a quarter. No, we're going to jack them up 25 basis points and we're going to warn you about this. And then this week, um, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, is giving testimony and he said that he was helpless in the face of surging inflation. And that was the first time I've really seen that kind of talk from any central banker anywhere in the world, let alone you know one of the kind of the big G7 ones. Um, fast forward 24 hours later, and there's another headline of the same newspaper in the UK, the Daily Telegraph. Um, you know, cabinet minister shocked at Bank of England governor's helplessness yeah. in the face of inflation, and and these little oh. things happen, and you realise that they're helpless and hopeless. I mean, they've missed the boat on this thing. They should have been tightening a long, long time ago. Now it's too late, and the tightening that they're going to be forced to do if they get serious about this is going to be catastrophic. So I, I don't know what lies they believe and what lies they don't, but the reality, I think, is starting to hit them around the face that we're helpless because this is food inflation. I can't print wheat. I can't print soybeans. Right. There's no solution to this, unfortunately, but higher interest rates. Well, um, but when you look around market land – it doesn't seem like that helplessness is priced right. in at all. I think the markets, I mean, obviously we've had a correction in the market, but we're not in free fall and it's not as though the mentality has changed. I mean, you know, on a day when the market's down a lot, you turn on any of these ridiculous financial news, I'll call it in, in quotes, programs and they're all composing their shopping list of right. what they're going to buy. So there's no sense of panic about the type of pain that you're talking about there. And if and policymakers really are helpless, how much worse things are going to get. You know, so that shoe still has yet to drop, which is just amazing to me. And uh, the one area where I'm so focused on that particularly is the earnings yeah. forecast. I mean, I'm just mystified. And especially now we've seen Walmart, Target, Amazon. I mean, these are not, you know, little insignificant companies that are starting to report, you know, that they're, they're having some problems and the consumer isn't exactly bulletproof. Um, and yet, you know, the broad sense of the market is, well, the economy's fine. I mean, it's a debate whether we're going to have a recession or not, which is but that Shocking you've those corporate profit margins and EPS growth. These are things that you constantly hammer on, and I know you think you get boring with it, but it's just so important. And, and obviously, it's going to become important to a lot of people at the same time. And you wrote in another recent piece, surprise, surprise, right? You you, you talked about that EPS growth, that big change in EPS growth. Talk a little bit about that because the numbers around that, not only the size of that change was crazy. But also when you put that in perspective against you know the stock market cap, corporate profits, GDP, like the, just, yeah. just run people through that because I think I read your work religiously and when I saw that, again, I was like, man, this Poor is – thing. <laughs> it, uh, well, I mean, it is surprising to me that it doesn't get more attention, which is why I continue to beat it to death because I figure if I'm the only one, I may as well, well just ride that like, horse. Yeah. Get out of it, right? Oh man! But um, but right now, you know, you come into 2022, and what do you know? You know that uh, liquidity is not going to be 
working in the market's favor. And there are only there's only one other thing that can support the market, and that's the fundamentals. So if it clearly liquidity is going the other way, that then the fundamentals should take on increasing importance. And obviously that being, you know, what are what are earnings forecasts going to be? And you know what I've been looking at, as you know, having you know uh, abused yourself by reading my stuff so often, uh, is the the um, gap between the PPI input costs and the CPI, the, which is essentially the ability to pass them on. And we all focus sort of like with payrolls myopically on the CPI, and then the PPI gets almost no attention whatsoever. But if you're running a business. You know, it's great if you've got consumer price pressure, if you can push yeah. prices through. But yeah. if you stop being able to push higher prices through and you don't get any easing of your input costs, you got a problem. And as you described earlier, you know, the Fed can't manufacture fuel or food. And, and those things are really really starting to pressure corporate profit margins. And again, you, you saw that, you heard it from Target and, and Walmart, and that they're just, you know, they're trying to be sensitive, especially Walmart, I guess, because it realizes yeah. it can't push its customers yeah. too far. But on the other hand, it also doesn't want to go out of business. So they've got to figure something out. I would guess that for Walmart, the fact that a lot of what they used to sell was made in China isn't helping matters. <laughs> any either. But the point was just, if you look at the difference between how quickly input prices have been going up versus the ability to pass them on, just the difference between the PPI and the CPI, it's never been this bad outside 1974, right. you know, the worst stagflation in our uh, economic history. So no one's focused on this, but the implied uh, profits recession is the worst in, you know, 50 yep. years. And and yet no one's forecasting a profits recession at all. In fact, they have consumer discretionary earnings growing 31% this year after growing 50% or something last year. And that number has come down admittedly from, I think it was 48 at the beginning of the year, but 30% growth. I don't, I mean, I think they'll be lucky if they get right. zero growth. Well, and that, and that chart, <laughs> you know, the chart you put up, because these, these PPI numbers, as you say, they, they get so little attention, but we're talking, I forget what the US number is, in the 20s somewhere, right? And I think I think in Europe, Italy is like 46% and Spain is in the high 30s. And these are massive numbers. And that chart that you had, I forget which one of those pieces it was in, but the corporate profits before tax versus that, uh, CPI minus PPI index is, yeah. that, I think that went back yeah, to the yeah. 70s or even the 60s maybe, I forget now. But it was just, you, you can't not see that. Once you see that chart, you can't not see that and you can't not understand what that means for companies. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the question is, why isn't everyone forecasting a profits recession? And I guess my sense is, <laughs> give it a minute. You know, right now it takes a while. It takes a while to go from expectations of, 48% consumer discretionary to 31, yeah. ultimately to zero, and then down, down 30 or whatever the number is. But we're chipping away at it, and that's probably one of the headwinds that the stock market's been facing, that these pie-in-the-sky earnings numbers are starting to come down, albeit begrudgingly. Um, but it's that's mystifying. I mean, we can sit here and debate whether 
we're going to have an economic recession, but the idea that we're going to have a profits recession seems to me like that's that's already completely baked yeah. in the cake. Well, I mean, the Fed have at least given us a roadmap for how you go from it's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory. Oh, we're screwed. <laughs> and, and so at least from yeah. the analyst side of things, there is a roadmap there for going, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good, we're screwed, and then taking yeah. their numbers down dramatically, which they're going to have to do. You know, the, the other part of this, which obviously, again, I'm, I'm amazed what a lonely voice you are talking about this stuff every time you talk about it because I, I, I don't hear anything about it between you going, um, have we looked at this lately, which is <laughs> credit card borrowing and oh, yeah. saving. Right, I mean that's another chart that you put in in, in one of these pieces that you, you look at that and you it, it's impossible to square it with the narrative. Impossible. Yeah, which then makes you wonder, you know, yesterday's retail sales number, which was a lot better, and then they revised upward the prior month, and then the cover of the Wall Street Journal. This is just classic. Uh, this morning says, I think the headline was retail sales uh, surged despite higher inflation. Well, no, <laughs> they surged because, because of higher inflation, yeah. right? You got the yeah. wrong word, right? So they don't adjust that for pricing. And everyone gloms onto the headline numbers here again and says, look, you know, the economy is the consumer is strong. They're in great shape. Um, never mind that the increase in retail sales was almost precisely the increase in inflation for the month yeah. instead of the month prior. And as you mentioned, we just saw the largest increase in credit card borrowing in our history in the latest month. And that's after a couple previous record <laughs> increases. So, you know, consumers went from, from paying down credit card balances in record fashion with their COVID stimulus money to just not being able to borrow fast enough and they've depleted all their savings. The personal savings is now back actually below where it was before the pandemic started. So this idea that there's all this excess savings that they can use to fund further consumption is also um, a fiction. So yeah, it just it's another thing where I don't know how long you can maintain this illusion, you know, how long you can believe the lie that the consumer is strong and that um, we could have a softish landing. But right now, no one's, like you said, no one's focused on the credit card stuff. And, and they look at retail sales and say, see, everything's fine. And I guess Walmart and Target are the exceptions, not the rules. So. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's always a reason. And look, for the longest time, you and I have known, and, and a lot of other people have known, that the, there's a desire to believe in this good outcome, right? Because you, you don't sell products if if the story is go into the bunker, hunker down, go to cash and, and hide from what's coming. You just don't sell your product that way. What we've seen in, in recent weeks and months, particularly in the stock market, is the return of volatility. And that volatility doesn't happen on a consistent basis like we've seen it unless there is a shift underway. You know, you see it in short-term events, it spikes and goes back down again. But um the volatility in equities, but more importantly, the volatility in credit. Yeah. And again, you know, once again, this is something else you wrote about recently. That move index, the move in the move. Uh, <laughs> again, I suspect would catch an awful lot of people by surprise. So, just talk a little bit about that because that corporate credit market is really 
and I've had this conversation with so many people recently, that's what matters. The treasury market doesn't yeah. really matter. It's the corporate credit market that's important. That's what I've always said is, you know, I think we'd all actually be very happy to see the U.S. government have to pay more to borrow more money, right? Let's let's yeah. disincentivize them from, you know, spending like drunken sailors for a little bit. But what's happening in the knock-on increases in private credit, both consumer, you know, credit card borrowing and mortgage rates, et cetera, but specifically on the corporate side is really important. And uh, this is another one where, you know, I've been writing about it for a while because I've been tracking that just the nominal backup in interest rates in junk and high yield and even invest, I mean, junk and even investment grade for a while. But it's been ignored largely because people myopically fixate on spreads. And yeah. so basically they ascribe the entire increase in junk yields and IG and everything as just moving in March step with the backup in treasury yields and see it therefore as sort of an innocuous event. But the point is moot. It, this is exactly like homeowners who took out their first mortgage back in 2005, six, and then couldn't even handle the first reset. You know, rates are only low relative to your experience, you know? Uh, so when people say, look, corporate borrowing costs, sure, that high yield has gone from 4% at the end of December to 7.6% right. today. Right. You know, that's a massive increase. They say, yeah, but it's still low. It's still incredibly low and spreads are tight. Well, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant for a borrower who could only afford to pay 4%. You know, they started hurting at 5, 6, now we're at 760. So I, I think the spread is actually moot at this point, junk spreads. I'm much more focused on the nominal yield. And like I said, it's almost doubled in less than five months. Right. And, you know, the move index, which tracks treasury volatility, but it's just, you know, a good encapsulation of the liquidity issues. This is it, yeah. you know, and the Fed starts to tighten, much less prepared to drain, you know, shrink its balance sheet. The liquidity implications there on the credit market are going to be material. I was actually on a panel the other day um, on talking about the CPI report and they came to me first and I made some snide comment about the Fed and how Surely they not. Well, so I, I uh, made some comment about the Fed being behind the curve and I didn't realize who the other panelists were, but the next person they turned to was Robert Kaplan. I mean, no. Yeah. Oops. I'm sorry. Now I'm forgetting his name. I'm sorry. This is this is COVID brain. There but he was the Kansas City, former Kansas City Fed chief. It's not Robert Kaplan. It's uh, an older no, it's the other gentleman. guy. It's the other guy. Um, He's an older gentleman. His comment shocked me, and it should have it should have gotten everyone's attention because this is a former Fed official. He said that everybody is underestimating the impact that the shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet is going to have on liquidity in the credit markets. He said this is going to be extremely painful in the credit markets and no one is prepared for what's going to happen. I'll try to remember his name. Was it, Tom Honig? Gonna... it wasn't Tom Honig, right? Yes, Tom Honig. Okay, okay. Yes, Tom sorry. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but so his point was that the markets are seriously unprepared for 
the amount of dislocation that is going to come with the Fed's shrinking its balance sheet. And I think he's totally right about that. Well, Steph, it's a really interesting point because the one thing we've seen lately, which I find very, very interesting, is an awful lot of bravery from former Fed officials in terms of <laughs> calling out, you know, we've seen Bernanke piling on. Yeah. We've seen a bunch of ex-governors. I think Kaplan was one of them. You're right. I think Bullard's piled in. Um, there's a bunch of guys who are wading into this from the safety of a, a retired position yeah. saying, well, you know, the Fed kind of, in hindsight, they should have done this. In hindsight, they should have done that. And even, even current Fed officials are saying, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we might have done this differently. Meanwhile, down in Australia, the, the RBA governor, Philip Lowe, has basically apologised for their mishandling of the inflation situation. So you have to think that when this kind of thing's happening, e, A, when they're turning on each other um, and in a hurry to throw the incumbents under the bus, and B, when some of the incumbents are, like the Bank of England are calling themselves helpless, the RBA are apologising for they've handled it. Yeah. They must be getting pretty worried about the position they finally backed themselves into. Yeah, well, one would think. I guess here in the U.S., what I wonder is how much rain does Powell actually get to pursue his Volcker 2.0 right. agenda before he? They say, okay, this is this is enough pain. You know, if the economy looks like it's going into recession before the midterms, or What's worse? Is it is that worse or is inflation still north of 8% worse yeah. uh, or a stock market down 40%? What's, you know, it's just hard to gauge because it seems like the reason why Powell did that 180 was that he was largely pushed to do it by the administration that I think identified that inflation was their number one liability. And if they didn't seem to be doing something about it, then you know, it was really going to cost them. I don't know. That's I'm not a political analyst, but that was sort of my my reading of it. I don't know. But, you- no, but, it, but it's interesting listening to commercials on the on the radio in a car and, um, you know, like flyers and stuff in shop windows. You see now people are talking about the cost of living crisis and they're talking about, you know, higher prices and they're talking about inflation. They're talking – this has become you – know, we talk about this idea of things getting entrenched – it's absolutely there, and it's it's uppermost in people's minds. And just just the conversations you overhear in grocery stores and stuff are all around prices and gas stations. And you know, I think they've left it too late for this stuff to get entrenched. Now, I'm I'm hearing that everywhere I go. And um, so, when you hear these radio commercials for you know companies that change the muffler on your car, and it starts with you know due to the increasing cost right. of living. You know, we're coming up with this policy that will guarantee your muffler gets changed, blah, blah, blah. That's very real, and it's very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I struggle with is uh, how much the inflation traction in the stuff people can't live without crowds out the inflation elsewhere. And, you know, if people – do I really need a new cell phone every year? Or is Apple right. about to find out that, no, we're the ultimate discretionary item people don't need, you know, to constantly be changing their cell phones? Just that's one example. Obviously, we saw the thing with Netflix where it seemed like 
that may have been more of a pandemic thing, but who knows? Maybe people decided, look, why am I paying $10 a month or whatever it is for this recurring subscription that I watch maybe once a month? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're going to start to see more of that. And then getting back to the profit side, one of the real consequences of a recession in corporate profits will be to dramatically cool the pressure on the labor market. Because one thing you don't do when you're yeah. losing money is run out and hire more people, much less pay them more. So they might not let people go because it took them so much work to get people back. So it may be sticky to get, you know, to see layoffs or to see actual job declines, but I would think the wage pressures would really start to cool dramatically just because suddenly, you know, you don't really need as much work, as much labor force if you yeah. are selling fewer fewer goods. Well, the, the, other, the other thing that's, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise, including you and me, um, certainly me, maybe not you so much, is the strength in the dollar, you know? I mean, this is something that has caused an awful lot of pain right across markets. It's a big feature of what we're seeing in the broader spectrum that we've talked about. What's your take on the dollar? Because you and I are both on the record saying we think ultimately this thing is going a lot lower. I have to say the strength, it was the interim strength didn't surprise me. The strength of the strength did, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I mean, I guess when you step back and you say, okay, well, here's the Fed doing a complete 180. It's sort of like the inverse of the Powell pivot in fourth quarter 2018. Yeah. So in a way, is it surprising that the dollar went up so much and that gold has, you know, been kind of put on its heels? I guess not really, just because he's he's selling this lie for now. The question is, is it a lie? I believe it's a lie. I think you believe it's a lie. And that ultimately the Fed is going to have to reverse course. It's just a question of how much pain it's, it's going to be endured to get them there. But the other side of it is obviously, you know, the dollar is going up in part because of the Fed, but also because there's a lot of awful stuff going on elsewhere. The China in particular, you know, it had actually been going down a lot versus the one. The one had been remarkably strong. And then all strong. of a sudden, you know, when you lock down your economy, not so good for the currency, it turns out. So that's been one thing. And then, of course, Japan as well. So between the yen and the won, you know, you've seen two areas where the dollar had not been performing as well that suddenly have have seen a turn of fate. So I, I guess when I look at those, I think to myself, how much worse can things get in China? I mean, that may be a dangerous uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, thought experiment, but they're already shut down. So like, are, can you shut down more? I, I don't know. I would think the the next thing here is probably a little bit of an easing of the mm -hmm. restrictions on China. So at the margin, you know, that should um, be more beneficial for their currency and, and worse for the dollar. And same in Japan, I feel like, but the, you know, it's just, maybe that's my me working backwards from the conclusion that the dollar has to go down, you know? It's easy to do, but the, but the conclusion, um, and again, a conclusion that you've written about at length and you and I have spoken about at length over the years, and that is the, the bigger story here. And, and again, you touched on this in, I forget which piece it was. Um, but me too. The, the dollar is... Um, it, 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 we're talking about here about the death of fiat money, not the dollar, not the yen, not the euro. 
Um, and you made the point uh, in the piece of comparing it to the ruble and looking at that chart of the ruble yeah. after the sanctions, you know, which is – I've been fascinated by the reaction to that chart um, because you, you look at it and then people will tell you, oh, it's it's a completely controlled currency and so you can't pay any attention to that chart because it's uh, it's only the Russian central bank propping up the ruble. But the ruble is no longer really the Russian currency. It's a proxy okay. for, for energy. It's a proxy for gold. It's a proxy for all the things that we we've need. long posited, yeah, would, would be essential components of whatever the next monetary system is. You're going to have to go back, even if it's temporarily, to, to real assets, to something that you can peg money around that isn't just a piece of paper. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like suddenly people discovered, hey, Russia has stuff that people are willing to convert uh, their currency into to get. Uh, So, you know, if they have to buy gas in rubles, then that's fine. Uh, At least they have an asset backing it that has real value to it. And again, that is I thought that watching the performance of the ruble has been a perfect model for where we're ultimately going to end up going. Um, And that is that, you know, you had this complete panic where it was like all of a sudden no one wanted to touch this currency with a 10 foot pole. You couldn't transact in it. Nobody would have any part of it. Um, And then the next day, it's the strongest currency in the world, pretty much. Uh, And all because they happen to have this resource or a variety of resources that the world still holds incredibly valuable. And um, I I mean, I do think that's where we ultimately go, but I think, you know, it comes back to, you got to get that crisis, that panic moment where people say, we're never going to touch a dollar again, because look what they're doing over there with these dollars. Um, And right now we're, we're 180 degrees on the other end with, you know, Mr. Volcker, apparently, so we have a journey to take, but like you said, I mean, the the transition time from, you know, confidence in Volcker to, oh my God, Powell pivot, uh, yeah. it could be a blink of an eye. Probably that, you know, the, the, the ruble's fascinating to me because, as you say, it's it's stronger now than it was before the sanctions. And that is exclusively because of energy. There's mm-hmm. no money going into Russia for any other reason other than energy. So just on its energy alone, this is the ruble, which is fascinating if you think what happens when they – if if the sanctions get lifted, you think how cheap that Russian stock market is, how much money is going to be pouring into Russia to try and invest. Mm. You know, there, there is a future here that ex-Putin is going to be a remarkably positive story, and it won't begin with a currency on its knees because that currency – has this backing of of energy supplies yep. that are the biggest in the world. They did a reset. You just saw it. Right. Exactly right. And and, and but that the idea of a reset, it's funny, you know, when you, whenever you say the word reset, people think of, you know, Klaus Schwab and his mountaintop lair and they right. think of this, <laughs> this weird one stuff going on. But this is in practical terms what it looks like. You you you've essentially been forced to back your currency with a hard asset. And look what happens. I mean, it's it's the, the the pain that is going to be felt in all fiat currencies ultimately. When, to your point, people realise that they are backed precisely by nothing. Right. Um, 
what can Japan back the yen with? You know, they've got fine <laughs> industry, and they could, but they've got no resources. They import yeah. just about everything. You know, China have resources uh, for sure. The Middle East, obviously, they have a major resource. And, you know, the U.S. has backed its currency with its military for 60, 70 years. Right. And so that's worked out pretty well. But things change. And I think this ruble move and what's happening in Russia is an incredible clue as to as to which way all this is going. Maybe not now, maybe in, in a protracted timeline, but this is the way it's heading, it seems to me. It's very Mad Max. Um, <laughs> and what's interesting to me is, um, I mean, I'm sure there are policy failures uh, to be laid at the doorstep of many economies, but here in the U.S., to have an anti-fossil fuel agenda in the midst of this whole thing seems like the most asinine thing you could possibly do. If you genuinely want to bring down inflation and to genuinely weaken Russia, you don't do what they're doing here. You, you, you open up production, you cut taxes on energy produce, you do everything you can to get them to produce as much as they possibly can but that's not the the agenda. Um, so it's interesting because from a from a geopolitical standpoint, the the reset that we're seeing and the the redefinition of the broad parameters of how you're going to excel as an economy globally going forward is just oblivious. It seems to be nowhere on the radar of the current administration yeah. here in the U.S. We're kind of letting this whole thing play out and we're dithering on the sidelines about, you know, some near-term attempt to bring down uh, greenhouse gases. I don't know. It's, I get that long-term, but, you know, we've got to have a plan to get from yeah. here to there and not cut off our nose to spite the fa- her face in the process, it seems like. But it's frustrating because it is such a no-brainer and we are watching these, you know, the chess pieces being moved around pretty dramatically um, and we're not, you know, playing an active part in it. No, we're not. Yeah, it's, it's, as I say, there is so much going on right now. It, it seems like every time yeah. you sit down and talk about this stuff, there's just no shortage of things to talk about. And, and that energy component is a really big one and because, as you say, right, they're doing everything that you wouldn't do with yeah. the problem you're trying to solve. They're doing everything you wouldn't do to solve it, and they're doing things that are guaranteed almost to make it worse. Yeah, and I think that obviously it, it speaks to their design. They, they want to see fossil fuels basically go extinct or however you would put it. And so rather than trying to boost domestic production between now and the midterms, because obviously this is a real political loser, gasoline prices, you know, hitting new record highs. That's why they go pleading to the rest of the world to pump more oil. You know, it's just, there's no reason to do that if you could produce domestically, but they don't even want to open the taps here because they know once they open the taps here, they can't be really hard pressed to close them back up. So it's just easier to start shopping the rest of the world. So just a clear statement that they have zero intention of, you know, moving off of that agenda. Um, and that's therefore, I think for the U.S. going to continue to mean we're going to have really high energy prices for a long, long time. And that's going to be, you know, a persistent problem as relates to bringing down inflation in any meaningful way. Um, 
Well, you just you just exclude fuel and food and shelter from the calculation. It's very simple, Steph. You're not thinking. You're not. You're not thinking like a bureaucrat here. That's the trouble. Well, look, it's uh, as I say. There's there's so much going on, and so many of these things are in motion now, and will continue to get more ridiculous. Yeah, we can count on that. Uh, and you and you can see, but you can see this this idea of you know your, what you said about it, it's not a lie if you believe it. You can see this from just about every official standing behind a microphone. Yeah, you can almost feel that I I have to say this, and I'm I'm going to convince you, but first I have to convince yeah. myself. And some of them are doing better than others. Let's put it that way, and trying, and trying to show that they've convinced themselves. Yeah, about well, it's stuff. manifest in the uh, consumer confidence numbers because. Um, policymakers may think that they're selling the lie, but the average American isn't buying it. So that's that's very no. clear. No, no. Oh. no. I mean, those those that Michigan University of Michigan consumer sentiment numbers back to oh eight levels, right? I mean, it's just it's horrendous. But no, no recession here, folks. No recession so. here. Nothing to see. <laughs> and if it is a recession, it'll be transitory. Don't worry. Well, listen, <laughs> Steph, I I really oh, appreciate oh, you oh. getting off your deathbed to to do <laughs> this. <laughs> you, uh, you're, this you're was a tr- the cure for what ails me. This you're a, is what you're, I a, you're a trooper. But yeah. um, what do you say we uh, we do this? I think we should we should next time we'll uh, we'll invite a guest on. What do you think? We haven't had a guest on with us for a while. It's I just think been that's you and me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should take uh, requests. <laughs> hey, that's not a bad idea. If there's anyone right. you want to hear us talk to, and and uh, other than other than Jerry Seinfeld, I think that would be a really hard get. I mean, I'm not opposed to trying, but <laughs> if anyone out there knows Jerry and wants to put him our way, then we would love to right. talk to him too. All right, well, listen, Steph, it's been fun. Go back to bed. Take care of yourself. Drink lots. Hydrate. I think is the advice I kept giving when I was when I had COVID. Not that I wanted to listen to anybody, but I hope you feel better soon. And um, I'll talk to you again when you do. Okay. All right, take care. Cheerio. Cheerio. (laughs) Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.